Part of my interest in all of this is the ubiquity of plastics throughout the world, but that we focus on certain graspable objects. And that because of that, we miss the kind of um, malleability and the changeable forms that plastic goes through and the long temporality of plastic. Even if we stopped producing plastic right now, we would still have tons and tons and tons of it around as waste for hundreds, thousands of years. There's lots to be said about how challenging it is to envision these post-plastic utopian scenes. Like, is it even possible to live after plastic? You know, I keep on coming back to the problem of totality and how easy it is to simply evacuate from the frame the things that you don't want to think about. Part of our responsibility as, as humanists is to try and imagine better worlds other collectivities, other possibilities, other political possibilities. And I think this project and this book actually demonstrates why the humanities are so important. Hello, everybody. I'm Karen Eyre from Brandeis University. I'm, I'm so happy to be here for this podcast devoted to our new collection, Life in Plastic, Artistic Responses to Petro-Modernity, just fresh off the griddle from University of Minnesota Press and here with some of our contributors. And we're gonna hear from each of them about their piece and uh, see what points of connection and kind of general ideas build out of our discussion um, on the topic of plastics, petromodernity, petrocapitalism, the whole phenomenon of extractive energy economies. So I'm just going to go ahead and introduce all three of our speakers, and then we'll go ahead and hear from them, I guess, in the order that I'll introduce you, if you don't mind. So our first speaker will be Christopher Brew, who's um, a professor of English in, at Illinois State University, and he's written widely on questions of masculinity, sex, uh, materialism, and the body. Um, and his essay in the collection is entitled... The Petrochemical Unconscious, Destructive Plasticities, and Richard Powers' Game. Our second speaker today is uh, Crystal Bartolovich, who's Associate Professor of English at Syracuse University. And she is currently writing a project titled Hating Utopia Properly. Uh, and her essay is titled, uh, for the collection, is titled Refuge of Ignorance, A Prehistory of Plastic. And... Our third speaker today is Sean Grattan, independent scholar and author of Hope Isn't Stupid, also taking up the utopias theme. Uh, and his essay uh, for the collection is titled The Impossible Figure of Oceanic Plastic. Take it away, Chris. All right. Uh, it's really good to be here. Thank you, Karen, for the introduction. And uh, good to see all of you and, and uh, be here in this podcast. Um, and thank you uh, to University of Minnesota and, uh, and Maggie uh, Sattler for, for setting this up. Uh, my piece in the, in the collection is, uh, it focuses on uh, Richard Power's uh, late 90s novel. I think it's 99 or 98. I can't remember. But uh, gain. Uh, and the novel is an, in, a really interesting novel. Powers is, is probably most famous now for the overstory, which he published a couple of years ago. Um, and he's really one of our leading uh, novelists uh, who sort of address issues of systematicity, address ecological issues, meditate on capitalism, although it's sometimes hard to pull apart what, where, where he comes down on it, among other things. Uh, but he at least engages it. 
basically what I argued in the collection was that the novel was really interesting. And this links both to uh, issues that Sean and Crystal talk about in their pieces. It um, is interesting because it actually meditates on questions of scale and how we address issues of scale when, when dealing with climate emergency and um, the ways in which plastics in general and various aspects of the petrol economy actually contribute to climate change and contribute to the, to the, the global decimation of the world ecology. One of the really interesting things in, um, in Gain is that there's this split narration between the story of Laura Bodie, uh, who is a realtor living in a small town in Illinois, uh, actually not that different from the town I live in uh, uh, at all. I'm actually in normal, a town called Normal, Illinois, which really does exist, believe it or not. You know, I try and be one of the less normal features of it, but, you know, you never know. Uh, but anyway, it, it's, it's a story of her getting cancer, probably from insecticide that she used at home, uh, uh, although it's never fully clear. Uh, and it's, it's something produced by the company that basically dominates the town or, or settled in the town for its headquarters, which was the originally soap company, but it becomes the Claire Chemical Company. And they make all kinds of um, plastics and all kinds of petrochemical products. Um, and so the, the book actually splits its narration. And what's interesting is it, it only at one point does the narration really connect. And there's all these sort of attempts at connection that don't really fully connect. Uh, and it sort of suggests the incommensurability of scales. Uh, when we talk about the large-scale destruction of the planet by capitalist and, and uh, ecocidal forces on the one hand, and then uh, on the other hand, this woman living a, a, an everyday life in a, in a small Midwestern town. One half of the narration is the narration of, of the Claire Company growing from a small Boston firm um, all the way into a, a huge multinational that's doing, you know, and, and it goes through every stage of capitalism from Taylorism to Fordism to sort of post-Fordist uh, uh, marketing processes, financialization, all of that. Um, and, it, and it sort of traces, uh, you know, diversification, um, all of those things. And it, it traces the, the development of the Claire Company, the rise and rise of the Claire Company. It just keeps going forward. Meanwhile, the book shows the kind of human cost um, with, you know, a very detailed account of, of Bodhi's death. Um, and it suggests that, in fact, you know, her story is not atypical, it's very typical. Uh, and this is part of the, the, the ecological costs of, of what the Claire Company represents. There are only kind of two moments where the two narratives sort of interconnect. One of them is through advertising rhetoric that shows up at the as, as sort of interludes between chapters. Um, and you get all these kinds of, you know, rhetoric that we, we all are bombarded with all the time from television, from radio, uh, you know, and if anything, the, you know, marketing has just gotten even more intense in the 20 plus years since this book was written. And the other one is a fascinating passage uh, in which there's a, one of those disposable cameras that gets left in a hospital room and it never gets used, but Powers springs into this kind of lyrical, profound account of the production of this, this simple disposable object from the materials of seven different continents and sort of explains how many different forms of labor that produce the plastic in it. Part of what I think the book gets at is Powers demonstrates the ways in which so much of how we interact with plastics and how we interact with the, the world ecology and, and the specific um, ecosystems that we're in is unconscious. And in fact, we can't begin to sort of recognize that, that, that those conscious dimensions uh, without doing a really fundamental reorienting of, of what we perceive very much like the ways in which commodity fetishism functions to obscure labor and conditions of the labor that go into that product. Part of what I'm trying to do with this piece is actually start to say, we need to come, we need to find a way of actually talking about that unconscious. And in the larger project, I'm combining Frederick Jameson's idea of the political unconscious, where there's a political both desire and a set of contradictions that exist in contradiction to representation and, and put pressures on representation. Um, I'm combining that with um, N. Catherine Hale's notion of the, the non-conscious. 
part of what Hales argues is it's, it is a lot of what functions in our electronic devices is not so much an unconscious as a non-conscious. And this comes to the question of, of non-human agency, which um, I think is one of the crux of the different papers that we're uh, talking about today. But I think we could talk about the agency or, or, or actors is a term that Sean uses nicely, I think, in his piece. Um, we can talk about the action or actors of, of various non-human entities, including things like code and uh, algorithms, uh, you know, which actually shape our non-conscious in various ways. So that's that's what I'm working on. Um, I'm also really interested in how we actually start to think about desire, um, like Jameson does, in relationship to ecological functioning and the building of, of non-toxic worlds. But I'll stop here and uh, and turn it over. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. I really think one of the implicit ideas shared by a lot of our contributions in this in this volume has to do with that relationship between you know petrocapitalism as something that we don't observe directly and plastic in the form of the commodity that we use every day. And if we want to think about that as you're positing as a relationship of the of the unconscious, where petrocapitalism is the unconscious of the forms of plastic that we know we're encountering. Of course, there are lots of plastics that we don't know we're encountering, and that's a different kind of problem. Um, let's hear from Crystal. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this. Um, I'm very excited to speak about um, my project with these other projects that are so closely allied in so many interesting ways. And there are some interesting differences too. I want to affirm though, Chris's observation about um, incommensurability of scale, because incommensurability of scale is in many ways what I'm dealing with too. And the debate in theory about totality versus assemblages. And the view in some strong assemblage theory Delanda, Latour, that there is no totality, right? That scale simply does not exist and cannot be referred to or referenced as having any kind of agency. Whereas for Marxist scholars, the agency of the totality is key. Even if we can't understand it completely or have complete access to it, as Chris rightly said, it's still imperative for a Marxist understanding to attempt to access it. And one of the famous versions of this is cognitive mapping, Frederick Jameson's cognitive mapping. And that is the attempts we make to access the totality from which that will always be incomplete or um, inaccessible in its fullness to us, and yet has effects on us that we have to trace. That is what Jameson underscores, that in order to act politically, we have to be able to situate ourselves in totality, however obscurely. So from a Marxist point of view, strong assemblage theory actually makes politics impossible, as we understand it, and that is crucial. So. Uh, Jane Bennett encountering the objects in the gutter, right? And she says, we need to stand back and, you know, form an assemblage with these objects and contemplate them with awe. And I'm like, no, pick them up before they get into the ocean, right? All theories produce ignorance as well as knowledge. And you have to choose carefully, right? 
if you're gonna, you know, focus on totality, you're gonna miss a lot of dots, right? And sometimes the dots are crucial. My essay, unlike the others in the collection, takes a long historical view. Many of us refer to uh, Jason Moore's theory of world ecology, and for him, it's crucial that we actually take this long historical view. He argues that the ecological catastrophe we currently inhabit emerges uh, with capitalism in the 14th century, right, 14th, 15th century. And so primitive accumulation is the primitive accumulation of catastrophe. My essay argues that this is exactly what Latour continuously brackets. Um, and I look at his famous example in We've Never Been Modern of his recasting of the Boyle debate and the divide that gets made between politics and science in those 17th century debates over the air pump actually produce the perceived rupture between nature and society that's been catastrophic for us. The, about the rupture, no disagreement. But what I point out is that he entirely brackets capitalism as having any bearing whatsoever on this divide. And that that itself is catastrophic for politics. Do we have to change the mode of production? Or can we, as Bennett says, attach ourselves to a different assemblage that might have better effects? I, I think that both of those modes can seem abstract. Um, and therefore, you have to work out in practice exactly what the politics should be, but that you also have to have in mind whether there can be any ecological uh, reparation of the planet and any social justice while capitalist property relations exist. That's the bottom line for me. And I talk in my essay about how when we look at the long history, we can see that already the seeds right, of this dispute about what counts, right? You have to look at the larger structure or can you actually deal at these more localized assemblage levels and have an effective politics? That's what I'm trying to get out of my piece. It's, it's about those concepts and it is about the longer history of plastic. And I can actually fill in more gaps about that longer history of plastic as we go along, but I wanna give Sean a chance. <laughs> I guess this, for, for me, the, my piece in, in the text has been in gestation for a really long time. I, I think I, the first version of it I gave as a talk at Penn State in like 2014 or so. Um, and it came from having read Ruth Ozeki's A Tale for a Time Being, and this moment in the book that sort of recurs over and over again about the main character, Ruth, well, one of the main characters, Ruth, trying to sort of grasp the idea of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. She keeps returning to her partner, who kind of mansplains the garbage patch at her a number of times. And so I was thinking a little bit about the difficulty of representations of, of sort of large scale um, ecological depredations. Um, so this is going to be part of a book project that I'm, I've been working on um, currently called The Aesthetics of the Fucked. And it's an attempt to kind of think through uh, versions of scale and apocalypse and affect um, in sort of contemporary um, literature and art. So we had that on one hand where 
the character Ruth couldn't really understand this thing that was actually the sort of like the plot device that made the whole book go forward. And, but it couldn't stick in her mind. There was this giant thing on the ocean that was swirling, you know, um, uh, Fukushima reactor disaster garbage up into Canada. And the other thing was um, this picture that I kept seeing on the internet of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, um, which was not the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It was a picture of a man canoeing in um, the Manila Bay Harbor, surrounded by like these giant heaps of garbage, right? And I think it's really interesting, the, the further away I've gone from that first moment of thinking about the essay, the more prevalent the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is in the discussion of what plastic waste looks like. But the problem hasn't changed insofar as it's still not really telling us what that looks like because the garbage patch isn't something you can really see um, for the most part. Most of it is microplastics. So I talk about four different people, um, uh, the poet Evelyn Riley, the photographer and filmmaker Chris Jordan, the British poet, uh, Jennifer Cook, and then Ruth Ozeki. And each person tries in different ways to sort of get us as people to think about the large structures of plastic. So for Chris Jordan, right, um, the most famous set of photographs of, of his from um, Messages from the Midway, which is a bunch of dead albatrosses, their guts have been basically replaced by plastic. Thinking about what that does or doesn't tell us about how, we, how plastic circulates both in terms of humans and, and animals, right? And various other sort of non-human actors. Because I mean, if you're thinking about what the garbage patch is, it's a, it's a non-human actor and has been described in ways that are very much, very lively. Um, so uh, Shredder is my favorite version of this, where it's like you get into the sort of whirl of the gyre and the plastic breaks down and it's, it's, it's you know, it's an activity, right? You know, one of the questions that looms over, I think, all of, at least for me, my interest in ecological crises and what I'm describing as aesthetics of the fucked. Rob Nixon's talked about how there's a crisis um, or a drama deficit in, in the crisis of climate change. We don't affectively feel what's happening in part because of the long-term scales, the temporal scales that these things are working at. But also, you know, the other sort of argumentative side of my piece is that what happens when we're trying to think about large-scale ecological crises like this is that the responsibility for that large scale gets placed onto the shoulders of individual people. This is part of a sort of neoliberal um, subjectivity in which you know, you're going to be able to fix climate change by just picking up a water bottle. Like that's great and you should do that, obviously, but um, that's gonna do very little. And obviously like if you're just focusing on that, you're missing out on the, the ways in which various institutions perpetuate and continue producing plastics. And then there's this kind of like guilt and desire that like we can all do this um, as individuals, which we, we can't. So, so part of my interest here is like, how do we both combine the drama of what's happening right now and what kinds of aesthetic moves might produce a sense of, you know, I think, I think Heather Hauser has a really great term for this, which is info well, without being like overwhelmed by all the information that's on the table. Um, and, and Jennifer Cook's poem, The Second Hand, is really good about this because she's talking about trying to like hold the idea of the garbage patch in her head, but then it wakes her up in the middle of the night and she's sort of you know, screams, sort of shit, like this is here. And like, but then she's on the internet trying to figure out what else she can do. And, and there's this weird kind of like, it's, I mean, it's obviously not ideology critique, but the way in which one uncovers what plastic is, then sort of 
says out in the world that, oh, there's plastic in your tea bags, for instance, then you sort of feel worse and better about that because you've said something. Um, but that, you know, individually isn't going to do very much. So I think part of my interest in all of this is the ubiquity of plastics throughout the world, um, but that we focus on certain graspable objects. And that because of that, we miss the kind of um, malleability and the changeable forms that plastic goes through and the long temporality of plastic. So that's kind of where I'm going with this and thinking about, you know, what kinds of forms of politics might, might come through if we think about the sort of large scale connectivity and thinking about like what, you know, the sort of circulation of plastic might tell us about the ways that we might work collectively and communally with one another. Thanks. I really feel like that ubiquity of plastics problem is one that so many people are trying to grapple with in different ways, especially the the creepy, the eerie, the ominous ubiquity of plastic that's partially on the interior of meat, you know, like us as meat, but also, you know, meats and things that we eat. I feel like that's a phenomenon we can now recognize and we continue, as you as Sean just said, to inform each other about. Um, did you know that your liver you know, contains large amounts of plastic waste and so on? I feel like we need to be able to name that condition of being. It's not a commodity, right? It's not waste exactly. It's a form of accumulation, but it's not primitive accumulation, right? And it has to do with how we're imbricated into, folded deeply into this world that derives from the needs of a petrocapitalist economy and not, you know, of some kind of a, you know, economy of thriving or something like that. I don't know if you guys have a way of, of thinking about that phenomenon. I was really struck by a quote in Sean's essay from, I think, Hauser, you can tell me, um, and she observes that, how did it happen that plastic, which is such a durable material, right, became the throwaway culture main object? And I, I thought that was beautiful. And I also want to stress, as I think my panelists would also, that that's not an accident, right? That, that did not happen accidentally. Just today, right, in the, in the local paper, there was an article about uh, a new study that was released about uh, ocean waste and we have to stop producing plastic. The United States should uh, set limits on plastic production. And I'm like, yes, great, great idea. You know, it's exactly the right scale and so on. Okay, so here was the response of the American Chemistry Council, the group that lobbies for the plastic industry. Okay, here's what they said. This is misguided and would lead to supply chain disruptions, economic and inflationary pressure on already hurt consumers, and worse environmental outcomes, particularly related to climate change. Okay, so on the one hand, right, as all of us would agree, you have to look at everything holistically, right? The first essay in the collection is called Paper or Plastic. Paper is terribly ecologically destructive, right? I mean, they, you know, it's not like having a paper bag is better than having a plastic bag if we're, you know, not reusing, recycling, um, and looking at the total production and effects of the circulation, right? So it's not that it's easy, but 
I was thinking, okay, so here I am at home thinking, you know, in the way that, you know, Sean rightly points out, BP wants us to all think about our carbon footprint, right? So that we will not say that, you know, BP needs to be, you know, stop getting its, you know, millions of dollars of subsidies, right? Which is what they're defending, right? They want to put everything on us. Because that is the kinds of subsidies that go to fossil fuels, which is massive. And the fact that, you know, this lobbying group gives millions of dollars to politicians, right? So they will not put those limits on plastic production. And so this great idea, right, that, you know, the production itself needs to be limited is probably not going to occur or certainly not going to occur at the level that is imagined by the oceanographers who are concerned about you know plastic in the ocean because capitalist interests are going to make sure that politicians are going to hear them but really when everything is so slanted right to the side of corporate power Making our voices heard is really hard. To me, that's one of the fatal flaws in, you know, a parliament of things kind of argument. Yeah, um, I want to pick up on a couple things. Uh, one, I'm fascinated, Karen, with what you were talking about in terms of like, how do we theorize the accumulation of plastic in the body? It actually is reminding me of my work on my In Defense of Sex project. One of the things I'm interested in is, is the ways in which uh, intersex bodies and also racialized bodies were used uh, to actually produce forms of knowledge, um, uh, uh, both urological knowledge and gynecological knowledge, um, and, uh, and that, that it was a kind of accumulation via the body, which is interesting. And I mean, it's a, it's a version of accumulation by dispossession, but it's almost a, a version of accumulation by, by uh, prosthesis you know, or, or by surgical invasion. Uh, in various conditions of non non uh, consent, among other things, but uh, but I'm I'm interested in in how plastic being in us is a kind of it's a mode of transforming bodies into you know a kind of toxic posthumanism, if you will. It's maybe the waste product of accumulation. I mean, we have to think on a number of scales, but thinking on the scale of the body may be really important, and not just our subjectivities, but actually thinking about how the body intersects with it, with all of this, you know, and, and collective bodies, because I think Sean's exactly right. We, we can't solve this on the level of the individual. I mean, that's exactly the way, and Crystal, as you put it, that's exactly the way corporations have been basically writing off their own responsibility by, by, by foisting it on us. If we all recycled 100%, it wouldn't put a dent in what we need to really address. One of the things I really appreciated about Sean's piece was that we need to think about how representation functions in, the, in, in this context. How do we think about affect? How do we produce affects that actually get people to react to climate change? Um, but of course, Crystal's right too, that, that we also are facing huge political obstacles. I would love to still see some of this done on the level of policy. We need state actors too. We can't just do this as a collective. Although, as Sean, as you point out, the garbage patches are precisely non-state spaces, you know, and so there's no regulation of them necessarily at all. I've been dealing with the ways in which the concept of plasticity has been one of the ways in which gender has been narrated by people like John Money. And plastic seems to be often a kind of excuse to say that you can mold things into whatever shape you want to mold them into. Plastic is actually a material still. Uh, you know, it's this absolutely malleable thing that you can manipulate in anything, um, except for it doesn't disappear. And it's interesting the ways in which the cultural uses of the concept of plasticity are all about the ability of science to manipulate without resistance. Uh, and so I, I think that's also part of the ideology of the present around plasticity, if that makes sense. Yeah, Chris, I think, I think 
Well, the two things. One, getting back to the kind of like sense of the importance of both a collective action and the sort of um, institutional actions. I, I think I think Crystal's really right. There's a lot of political forces against the sort of collective voices, and and um, and I think one of the really brilliant things about the intro to this book is uh, the ways in which, in the sort of pandemic COVID moment, everything became single use. And I'm, I don't know if it's the case where everybody else lives. I'm walking down the street and I see masks on the ground constantly or on the on the beach. I'm about a 45 minute walk from the ocean. So you see them like around there all the time. And coming from a state was a very early adopter of multi-use bags and um, things like that, that like immediately that disappears. If you think about like the speed that that could happen, that we could go that direction um, and that plastic becomes this clean thing, but it's is, as Karen rightly points out in the introduction, that the, actually the virus holds on to plastic easier than it did with, with cloth and other, other materials. But if we could just reverse that, that would be great, right? But like have the, the speed of like being like, oh no, we can't use plastic um, would be, that would be one of the sort of utopian options here, but that's um, obviously not on the table in the same way. Then, then thinking about the, the sort of utopian element that Chris was talking about in terms of plastics, so a number of the essays are thinking about like the way that the Bakelite stuff appears in a couple essays. It's like there's this wondrous material that can do anything. And the sort of like way in which we theorize the idea of plasticity, wanting to be malleable, wanting to like shift and change, how it's seeped into our discourse, plastic has, much like it's seeped into our bodies, um, might be an interesting thing to think about in terms of, of the way that we're sort of approaching some of this stuff. Yeah. You know, do we think in a plastic mode? I do want to say, I think there's some potential for understanding and developing a kind of rhetoric of crisis around plastic as a public health problem. The other piece uh, of the pandemic, of course, that we see in addition to the waste is, you know, the ability to transform all kinds of social institutions on a dime, right? You know, the way you work, the way you go to school, the way you shop, um, you know, all kinds of production and so on. It can change very rapidly when public health is the risk. That's, I think, a, a whole different set of terms and way of reacting and just understanding of our collective entanglement with each other. I mean, obviously they need to be entangled and you can't address the public health crisis while continuing to crank out masses and masses of this, of this stuff. But it is the fact that even if we stopped producing plastic right now and no more entered, you know, uh, entered our environment, we would still have tons and tons and tons of it around as waste for hundreds, thousands of years uh, to deal with. And it's as it degrades, those health issues continue. And some of the poets actually that, that Margaret Ronda talks about in her piece really have interesting ways of imagining, uh, imagining that. Adam Dickinson in his book, Anatomic, is like registering his, the changes to his endocrine system that happens you know, as he's encountering different petrochemicals and like measuring what's part of his interior, what's happening in it to his own chemistry as he lives in a, in a kind of poisoned environment. And that's a kind of living with your own horror that I don't think very many people could sustain, <laughs> um, but maybe a dose of that kind of horror is um, politically powerful. I'm really glad we're talking about public health. I too, like Sean, was really struck by that really great way that you started the introduction, bringing in this massive increase in uh, plastic waste. 
but it also led me to think about the flip side, being a dialectical thinker, <laughs> of the kinds of plus to public health measures that you're discussing. On the other hand, there is, of course, all of the people who refuse to get vaccinated, wear masks. And that's a issue of, quote unquote, individual rights to go back to the problem of the individual that Sean was talking about and a wanting to ignore the collective good, right? I mean, and it's really important that we remember how powerfully that is invested into American politics, right? This, the, as I heard a senator say yesterday, the people have a right to be wrong. <laughs> Seriously? And he was specifically talking about not being vaccinated, right? I mean, that everybody has a right not to be right. And I'm thinking not if it's going to impact on everybody and everything else, right? How does that get written out of the script? You know, I keep on coming back to the problem of totality and how easy it is to simply evacuate, right, from the frame, the things that you don't want to think about. I am worried about what will happen to me if I get this vaccine. But what about the two-year-old of, you know, your next door neighbor who can't get vaccinated, right? And that you could help perpetuate some terrible variant that is going to, you know, in fact, I want us to remember also the flip side, because I totally agree, you know, that the public health framing is really interesting, but it's really interesting on how it works on both, you know, as a positive and a negative. I agree, Crystal, that, you know, we, we're, we're up against certain kinds of uh, individualist thinking and, and a kind of almost joy in not taking responsibility for what one puts out in the world, uh, you know, whether it's anger, whether it's trash, whether it's violence. When we start thinking about totality, um, I think the other thing that we have to think about is how much of a global issue this is. The U.S. for its population produces way more waste than any other country. And yet we are not the people who actually wind up dealing with its, its effects for the most part. That image of the Manila Harbor, right, captures it, that most of our waste goes to other countries and other countries get paid off to deal with the waste. The, the question of scale becomes a, a question outside of national borders. How do you produce alliances that, that actually uh, transcend national boundaries? I, I have a former grad student who uh, is my favorite grad student of all time, uh, PhD student, uh, Erica Wills, a labor uh, educator and, and activist, um, as well as a professor of labor studies. For her, so much activism turns on the transnational, linking by the sort of chain of production rather than by national contexts or, or by labor labels. Instead, the idea is to link all the labors, you know, whether they're, they're skilled or not. That's the kind of organizing I think we need to think about. Um, so, yes. I mean, I think, I think one of the crucial things is to think about this as a transnational issue. Borders aren't really a thing, right? I mean, they are, but like in terms of the ways in which climate change happens, like borders don't matter. But the borders do matter insofar as certain national entities produce way more waste. And we all know this, but the U.S. produces way more waste than any other place. And we, as Chris rightly says, like, we don't necessarily deal with it in the same ways that other places do. So there's an uneven development of apocalypse happening here, right? I think one thing that we're leaving out of this, and I was, I was struck by this in terms of, of talking about the flip side of public health and the sort of kind of like, these are my individual rights, is desire and the kind of concept of desire, both in consumption, but also in 
flouting your consumption. I'm thinking about those trucks when you like put the sort of semi like exhaust pipes on the back of your like pickup truck and the joy or jouissance that people get out of driving by like someone in a Prius, you know, exhaling a bunch of gas. There's something really important to think about the ways in which like, and what is it ideologically that's this kind of like ideological individualism, but not for a sense that I'm an individual that can be part of the common good, but I'm an individual that gets to assert my individuality over other people, uh, people I don't agree with and people who I think that like are, you know, namby-pamby, woke social justice warriors or whatever. And all of this like is obviously nonsense, but it's nonsense that people feel very deeply. Something I think we have to grapple with in very real ways in terms of thinking about how we identify as consumers and what we identify as consuming, right? And excessive consumption, you know, is, is I think in some ways a very American sense of being in the world, right? You know, and identifying with products and identifying with the, actually the deadliness of those products is worth, worth keeping on the table here. Just a, a quick response to that. You know, maybe we can actually articulate forms of utopian or positive desire for like a drinkable water, for uh, environmental surround that that doesn't immediately poison you. That, that we could actually have collective desires for a a rich and redeeming world. I mean, and the we here is very complicated. For the world that that many of us thought we were sort of vaguely living in uh, while we were destroying it in, in various ways. But maybe we can think about a different version of that that isn't built on on toxic violence and destruction. Do you want a livable environment? Are you just are you happy to live underground all the time and with with masks? Uh, uh, you know, and not and not just by because you know governments are telling you you have to wear masks because you won't be able to breathe otherwise. On the other hand, I also think that one of the things we don't think about, and I think you got it exactly right, Sean. When you, we talk about those people who, uh, you know, are driving their their trucks with glee uh, past the Prius, that part of this is also a kind of complicated resentment that takes on class characteristics. You know, part of what part of the divide during the pandemic was between those of us who could actually stay at home and work and those who actually were working because they were essential workers, which means they were paid like shit and treated as disposable, who actually had to work out in the world. And there's the feeling like, well, I'm not safe. Why should you be safe? Yeah, I, I think that those class issues are crucial and it can be super complicated. I mean, I've, I'm from Southern Ohio, right? Appalachian, Ohio. My grandfather was a coal miner. I have grown up with the discourse of, you know, King Coal and the importance of the fossil fuel industry and protecting it. There's a really, really firm, like for all of us with different things to believe, I mean, not to say I put, had to put myself at risk, you know, you should be at risk too, but to believe that there isn't any risk. You know, I've spent my whole life in the coal mine and I'm fine. There's a really strong sense that, you know, we lie, right? The, you know, the, if, if you're trying to make a, an environmental case, but you know, to go back to the desire, it's very difficult. I, I know from <laughs> my own experience and, you know, I've been reading lots of books where people try, right? I mean, I've, I've just been reading uh, Wasase and uh, Leanne Simpson, the University of Minnesota Press author, <laughs> you know, writing about how difficult it can be to get people to join political struggles, right? I mean, I, there, I, there is nobody on this call who has not experienced it themselves, right? And about any number of issues, it's really hard to get people to participate in collective political acts. 
one has to think about what is making the shift, even when you know, right? I'm talking about people who know that, you know, global warming exists and is bad. How do we shift, right? I think that this is something that all three of our essays share. And in fact, that I think the volume shares in general. How do we shift from a certain kind of knowing and even feeling to effective politics? And that's the hard thing. So I think that we kind of did the, in this book, really great work on different images or texts that can help people think these really complicated issues through, as teachers are likely to do, right? But that next step is the hard one, right? How, how do we translate that or help participate in? I guess that's the only way it can be properly put. Going from that desire to movement, because it, the, 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 it certainly does not happen spontaneously. Yeah, I think that's an, a good thread to draw the pieces together and, and part of the conversation that we've been having. What are the tasks that, that relate to plastic now that are important to accomplish? And clearly a major one that a lot of different people have been taking up, especially in the visually arts, interestingly, is just making plastic waste visible. And you know, that often involves uh, projects that accumulate, you know, lots and lots of instances that are, you know, they have accretion and numerousness, you know, as their theme to build up those questions about scale. So just making waste that we, you know, extrude from our immediate environments visible and reminding ourselves uh, collectively of the, of the fact that, you know, matter doesn't disappear, right? That, you know, the, of conservation of matter, you know, uh, as a fundamental principle is crucial. Uh, but for narrative arts for writing, I think we have different kinds of options, uh, you know, different kinds of tasks that become present. From Chris's essay that makes the links, you know, between something like individual experience to uh, to kind of corporate presence or crystals, it helps us see the, the long evolution and prehistories of, uh, of things that we might take for granted in the present to Sean's that uh, expands the geographic scale and multiplies our perspectives, you know, on something that we might think we already know, like, it sounds like there's a place you can go and visit the, the patch, you know, but maybe it's not and kind of gives us a different way of thinking about space. Like, we have all of these problems that are specific, maybe to plastic and some of the other new forms of waste and new new materials of the 20th century. You know, we have these problems of, of visibility and interconnectedness. We need to know where they are as dots in the totality or as, you know, as strings, as, as, as spaces there. And a lot of these arts are using their particular capacities to achieve that issue of visibility. That definitely doesn't solve the question of what comes next, but it's uh, important. I think there's a there's lots to be said about how challenging it is to envision these post-plastic utopian scenes. Like, is it even possible to live after plastic because it endures so long? Should we in fact be thinking about environments that are managing and or mitigating effects and uh, and so on? Um, do we need to have a different kind of utopian imaginary in order to 
to live with the waste that we've already created. I think of this sometimes as like a really middle-aged way of being utopian. It's like, yeah, you made those decisions. You still got, yeah, got all of with them, you know, uh, but it doesn't mean that you have no options or, you know, that everything is, is foretold. You know, a teenager looks at a middle-aged person and says, ah, your life is over. You know, it's terrible. Just, you know, like a, you know, somebody from a completely pristine environment might, you know, from the country, you might look at the city or whatever and say, this is a poisoned, you know, damaged place. Don't be here. Um, but when you're actually in those, in those spaces, you see there's, there's room to operate, you know, there's space for transformation. And we have to figure out what those spaces and visions of a non-pure, but future oriented environment that includes plastic might be like. Um, no, I think that's I think that's exactly the point. What I'm trying to write towards, um, and I, I think I'm I'm really interested in, in different kinds of moments in which these like the fix people start talking about what kinds of fixes we we might have. I'm sure I'm not the person coining this, but like the mycological turn that sort of happened, whereas like mushrooms are everywhere, right? And like I mean, physically they are everywhere, but they're also like in sort of pop culture, and they are sort of being seen as this fix. But often with the language of like, well, you've really really fuck this one up so but look mushrooms and that's going to make everything better we don't need to actually do anything different so that's terrifying because we obviously need to do a lot of things different because the mushrooms are there before too we just didn't really realize it for all of like the the sort of obviously like apocalyptic and disgusting forms of like the great pacific garbage patch like there are ecosystems that are being built there by various creatures and um, that are making this thing that we did work. And this doesn't say, mean let's keep doing the bad thing, but that, as you were saying earlier, even if we stop all plastic production, like that, we're, we're going to, there's no post-plastic because we're all going to be done living by the time the plastic is done. So we have to think of a, a living with plastic um, and what that looks like. I want to raise at this point uh, Sylvia Winter's famous quote that white utopia was a black inferno. As soon as we start talking about the utopian, I think it's really important to you know meditate on that for a while. That what can look good right to one group can be built on the destruction of many other groups, and historically that's indeed been the case. In fact, hating utopia properly is precisely about that dilemma. That critique is now really widespread, right? That, you know, utopia is actually really dangerous. And I'm, I'm talking about on the left, that utopianism can be really dangerous. You know, look what it's done historically. There's tons of these critiques. Often, though, the authors do not completely throw away utopia, though, unlike the conservative critics of utopia who do want to reject it wholesale, that any attempt to make the world better is actually going to make it worse. That's actually one of Latour's arguments against totality, right? That, you know, attempting to have a total transformation is bound to destroy. But that's actually a conservative argument. I mean, it goes all the way back to Burke. And what I'm doing in my book is actually looking at the first 100 years of responses to Moore's Utopia in England. There are hundreds of them. Virtually all of them are negative or ambivalent. And I think that's really telling. 
I think we have to keep in mind this anti-utopianism as it's self-destructive. And yet also remember that there's a real critique of utopianism to be made at the same time. Dialectical thinking, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something that you're just mentioning, you know, Thomas More you know, famously saying that we should make toilets out of gold um, so that people change their relationship uh, to gold and are, don't like fixate on it and you know so on. That's such a good reminder of the way that materials are so important for utopian thinking, right? That it's, of course, they're predominantly about social organization, but visions of the transformation of our, of our material environment are crucial. You're thinking too of a Fourier, a Fourier who has like the fountains of lemonade and, you know, these visions of how you're going to change not only your landscape, but what can be in it, you know, and so on. Maybe that's helpful for us for thinking about, about plastic. I mean, plastic itself is a utopian product about which people respond in a really exuberant way. It's, you know, it's magic, it's transformative. It's going to make everything clean, bright, cheap, and beautiful, even though obviously, you know, it's followed by dystopian quickly turns into something that's, you know, cheap and disposable and uh, trashy. It has that kind of dialectic of attitudes embedded in it as a, as a material. Drawing on this tradition of thinking about the ways we can revalue and uh, reorganize the ma matter of our physical worlds in that utopian tradition, I think would be really productive. And, um, you know, we have a way of grappling with the problem of plastic that's tied to its, to its already existing shapes, right? Almost, you know, to, to nurdles, to the plastic glomerates, you know, we're, we're sort of, you know, to these plastic bottles that wash around, like we're sort of struck in dismay and awe at the abundance of shapes that this stuff can take, you know, in its own right. And we're kind of collecting and fascinating ourselves with those things, but going a step further, which is completely reasonable with a synthetic man-made uh, substance to envision transforming it and the places that it holds in our physical environment. That seems like a site for utopian thinking. And I'm curious what's happening there. And I feel like we've named all kinds of interesting projects for what I'm now envisioning as volume two, <laughs> you know, the politics of plastic. I wonder, I want to invite uh, you guys, if you have one last point you want to speak about or kind of hit home to do that and before we wrap up. So, yeah, I've just been thinking about the role of the humanities in, in all of this. And since this is a humanities project and one of the recent debates uh, internal to the uh, to the humanities and to literature to a certain degree recently has been the sort of post-critique uh, argument, you know, against critique and, and sort of appreciating other dimensions of, of texts working off of, but I also think transforming uh, Eve Sedgwick's, uh, her account of paranoid versus reparative reading. And to me, the rejection of critique is wrong for a number of reasons. We, I think we're demonstrating why critique is necessary, what, what Crystal is arguing for in terms of the, you know, thinking dialectically and, and looking at uh, totality and that representation needs to actually get us to the place where we start to have a recognition and a feeling of what what the problem is in terms of you know the ecocidal violence that that contemporary capitalism and and uh, you know the organization of our of our life worlds uh, is producing. But the one thing I think the post critique crowd is right about, uh, although I think this is already always part of um, uh, Jameson's notion of a, of dialectics among other things, uh, you know, is part of our responsibility as as humanists is to try and imagine better worlds. 
is to try and imagine how art relates to what Sean was talking about in terms of desire, how it relates to imagining other spaces, other collectivities, other possibilities, other political possibilities. And I think, you know, the humanities is under assault in, in, in all sorts of ways right now. And I think this project and this book, with its timeliness and its necessity, actually demonstrates why the humanities are so important. I totally agree with what Chris just said. And I would throw in summarizing some threads from this conversation. When I thought about the section that Karen put us in, Plastics Capitalism, which of course was so apt for our three essays, I was really struck by you know, how we think about that. And for me, it's plastic in capitalism, right, as, as part of capitalism. But there are a number of ways, of course, to read that phrase. A think theorist might read it completely differently. But that's where I want to make my intervention. In the correct and proper desire to critique human hubris and attempts at mastery, too often what's gotten thrown away is human and not equal, right? Uneven responsibility. This is explicitly rejected by um, Bennett, for example, right? I mean, who argues against responsibility because it allows humans a hierarchy, right? In relationship to things. But of course, if we've created humans damage, then we have a responsibility to repair it. That is a responsibility, not a mastery, a responsibility. And that distinction has got to be made. You can critique mastery, that's correct and proper, but you have to keep responsibility and its terrible unevenness. So when we critique individual behavior, we shouldn't have an individual politics, but at the same time, our lives actually are going to have to change. Right? They really are going to have to change in order to repair the earth and have global social justice. It's impossible to imagine how that would not be true. And so I, I think that attempting to imagine that individuals' lives are not going to be altered in the United States by the demands of ecological repair is not true and that we just have to suck it up right um, and we should right so critique mastery but maintain responsibility uneven right recognizing that it's uneven so the weirdest thing that ever happened for me in terms of publishing a book was the first review i got described me as a post critique person and i was surprised because that's not how I would imagine myself. But giving the post-critique crowd a sort of sense that they're the space in which one has right to imagine other kinds of collective forms of like other worlds are possible, I think is maybe ceding too much territory because certainly one of the key elements to critique, right, is that you're producing a sense of the possibility of thinking otherwise. You know, I, th I think I think one of the things that's that's crucial in talking about plastic and climate crisis and climate change and all these things is trying to figure out ways in which we can feel it. It can be effectively engaging. And that's really hard. I come back to all the time um, this moment, and I can't remember anymore who it was, but um, on the Senate floor, right, uh, holding a snowball and saying, like, this is, it's late spring in D.C., and, like, there's a snowball here. And so, therefore, 
global warming doesn't exist. Because like, look, it's cold out. This is, is just centered on that one particular sin acting like an ass. And that like, that doesn't even imagine that like, you know, the way in which like, it, well, it's not even, it's not even spring in a different hemisphere, you know, like, and, and so I think, I think there's sense that we need to imagine the world affectively otherwise. And how do we get there? Because that's, I think one of the things that we've been talking about here is like the, that feeling something is not the same thing as, as, as changing the world, but it is a, I think it's a crucial step. And so that, that side of this, I think, is one of the things that connects all of the pieces in this, in this book, some more opaquely than others. And then secondly, that, that the world does need to change. And that, as, as, as Crystal just pointed out, like, that means we need to change, too. It's not like we can maintain what we're doing and um, have the world become something other than it is. And I, I think that one of the things that came out of this conversation that I was really excited about is that like, there are some models that exist for rapid change and, um, and, and to think through what those kinds of like utopia, and it is, that is a utopian possibility. That's a, I mean, in utopia is a pedagogical mode, right? So this kind of process of, of moving towards something, if we see a model, like why not fight for it? Thank you so much.